this episode of Upon Further Review, the NCAA trips over two left feet while dancing, an unwanted spring break for a softball team, and is there a B-117 bomb ready to ruin all our progress? Also, part two of our interview with Native American Basketball Invitational Directors Gino Riscarpa and Lynette Lewis. Welcome back to Upon Further Review, your bi-monthly snapshot of COVID in the world of sports. I'm Ty Henry. And I'm Matt Zemek. Matt, we're in the period that most sports fans look forward to in America every year, the annual rite known as March Madness. And we've had a little bit of our own madness, a great tournament, some outstanding upsets, some quality basketball, some fun contrasts and styles, and some saccharine Sweet 16 matchups as we record this podcast today. But we've also had some other madness as well. Uh, we'll start with... Uh, well, let's start with the NCAA women's weights issue. I was watching that happen. I was just like smacking my head because, well, you know, the first thing you think of is if this were a non-pandemic situation and you win your first two games, you go back home for four days and you use the weight room that everybody uses, right? You use, the, it's the same weight room used by the men's lacrosse team, the women's swim team, the basketball team, the football team. Everybody uses the same weight room. I don't really fault Mark Emmert too much for that because I think he assigns this to people to do. I think they're at the top, they're, they're more focused on health and safety issues. But in terms of specifics and amenities, whoever was in charge of women's basketball, and apparently that's a woman named Lynn Holtzman, they did truly, this was a true unforced error on their part. Well, you know, an unforced error seems generous as though like you you hit a bad forehand uh, on break point. Uh, this is much more than an unforced error. We need to realize, Ty, that there have been a number of ways in which the N- women's NCAA tournament has not been given the same care and attention to detail as the men's NCAA tournament. So people know about the weight room disparity. But there's also the point that, you know, when you look at the women's courts in San Antonio and surrounding areas in that Texas environment, which is, you know, similar to what the Indianapolis setup is, you don't see March Madness as the center court logo. You know, the women don't get that same status. You see a women's basketball, the words women's basketball written in the middle of the Alamo Dome court. Other courts don't have March Madness lettering. And uh, Rachel Bachman of uh, the Wall Street Journal just wrote a story about that uh, this past week, that the women don't get the same branding as the men. And then an- another big piece Lindsay Schnell, uh, investigative reporter, enterprise reporter for USA Today, she noted that women coaches and and women athletes, if they have kids, those kids are counted as part of their travel parties. So they face restrictions in terms of how many people they can have with them. So it's punitive against working moms uh, at the women's NCAA tournament. And so those two stories have really flown under the radar while this weight room story has emerged. So we have three, Ty, not one, three very distinct ways in which w- the women, uh, coaches and athletes at the women's NCAA tournament are not being given a fair shake. So this is not like some accidental oversight or, you know, this is one person in one spot overlooked a few details. No, this is systematic. This is pervasive. Um, you, 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 if it's three different knocks or three different uh, failures, that's more than just like an isolated incident or 
you know, a whoopsie, you know, this is much, much deeper than that. And I have to say that, you know, Mark Emmert, he is a figurehead. We need to be cognizant of the reality that it's not so much the NCAA that's doing these bad things. It's not so much Mark Emmert that's doing these bad things. The member schools set the tone. The member schools are, are keep saying with each of these actions, they're okay with this. They don't mind. It's not that big a deal. It's not really a problem. Whenever people say the NCA, and I've had to learn this, you know, 10 years ago, I was not in this mindset, but we have to really get with the program in terms of being aware of this. It's not so much the NCA, it's the member schools. Every time something really appalling happens and the member schools don't agitate and act for meaningful change and reform, that means the, the member schools are okay with all of these failures, all of these shortcomings. And I'm really getting tired of it. And, and, you know, I'd like to see change, but, you know, who, who is minding the store? When, when are these member schools, specifically their presidents, going to get off the mat and insist that this is not acceptable? And the, just the, the postscript here, Ty, these, these athletes in Indianapolis for the men, San Antonio for the women, they should all be getting hazard pay. I mean, they are being treated like workers. They're being treated like laborers. They're being given conditions for their work. You have to stay in this hotel. You have to stay in this sequestered, isolated environment. You know, you have to do all these things, abide by various rules, jump through various hoops. These people are being treated like workers, and yet they don't get take-home paychecks, and yet very few people are talking about it. It's a very depressing scene. It was brought up briefly that, and this goes uh, to my specific rooting interest, uh, I went to the University of Arizona. I went to school with this woman, her, his coach, Adina Barnes, and it was pointed out that she's the uh, only coach right now that has um, two young children. Uh, she just had her second child back in December, just as the season was ramping up, and they're in the Sweet 16. So, yeah, this is actually something that's very close to our situation as University of Arizona Wildcat fans with the working mother situation. Moving to the tournament itself, it's pretty much gone as well as it could go in terms of not having too many postponements or teams getting caught up in COVID type situations. But there has been one glaring exception. And the first exception when it occurred, it made me think of you. VCU had to uh, cancel their game against Oregon in the first round. Oregon is now in Sweet 16, Sweet 16 after beating uh, Iowa uh, pretty handily. But going back, looking back at the story, it appears that their situation, their COVID tracing uh, protocol violations and issues occurred during a period of time when they were at the conference tournaments. Now, you would suggest a specific adjustments this year, well, essentially canceling conference tournaments. And that was one of the first things I thought about um, when this situation uh, presented itself. What were you thinking when you saw what happened with VCU? Well, you know, in all candor time, my first thought didn't go to, oh, they never should have played conference tournaments. Because VCU's in the Atlantic 10, there's, there are specific details with the Atlantic 10 that need to be uh, discussed just in case people are unclear about it. 
the A10 had a situation where it played the all the the uh, the preliminary round, the quarterfinals, and the semifinals on the first weekend of uh, the 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 you know the two week conference tournament period. Mm. But then it played the title game a week later. Wow. Uh, you know, yeah, in a, in a separate location. And so, for let's let's sort through the details here because it, it needs to be walked through very patiently. The the reason why the title game was played a week later in a different location was that you know the the preliminary rounds were all played in Richmond. So, but St. Bonaventure was the number one seed. So the the rationale from the Atlantic Ten was you know if you play the title game in Richmond on that same weekend, well, you're forcing the number one seed to play VCU in what amounts to a road game in the conference title game. All right. You know, I get that, that there, there's a need to, to give the number one seed uh, a benefit. All right. That that's, that's true enough in and of itself, but to wait a week, the whole point of uh, playing a conference tournament uh, this year should have been, you know, let's move up the conference tournaments, move, you know, finish them well before the NCAA tournament so that if you do have any COVID-19 complication, you know, that team has enough time from the end of the conference tournament to the start of the NCAA tournament to get its house in order. And so VCU got caught in that trap. And what makes it extra frustrating for VCU, and this is another detail of all this, referee Roger Ayers, who came down with what, you know, is a serious case of COVID-19. I mean, he apparently he's now in stable condition but he had a more severe COVID-19 reaction than a lot of other people who get COVID-19. He was officiating that St. Bonaventure VCU Atlantic 10 tournament title game just before the NCAA tournament. So you have a number of different factors associated with that A-10 tournament title game. It should have been played a few days earlier. You know, maybe, maybe you shift the location to a neutral site, but you don't play it on the Sunday before the NCAA tournament. Maybe you play it on Wednesday or Thursday of that previous week so that you're still giving VCU or whoever won that game, you know, the sufficient amount of lag time before the NCAA tournament. So that's still an unforced error by the Atlantic 10. And then having Roger Ayers uh, officiate that game and he was not sufficiently monitored, you know, there were several officials who, who dined together indoors uh, in Indianapolis just before the NCAA tournament. There were like six officials who could not work that first weekend. And Roger Ayers was part of that group. That the, There was a mistake in terms of monitoring and tracing uh, the various officials. And some people will say, well, you know, the, 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 the framework should have allowed them to dine together. I, I don't see that. I mean, you know, officials – might generally, you know, obviously want to dine together, break bread together, discuss things, but this was not the situation in which to do that. You know, if 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 the players are are isolating and if the coaches are isolating, you all you also have to ask the officials to do the same, and that did not happen. You know, uh, we're just not in a situation where officials who travel from all different game sites all the time. You know, you just hop on a plane one day, get, go to a game the next day, hop on another plane. When you're having all this hopscotching across the country, officials needed to be in their hotel rooms. And we have this thing called Zoom. So a three-man officiating crew can do the Zoom. You talk shop, eat your own damn meal in your own damn room, not with anybody else. 
And the only time you're together is right when you take the court to officiate your game. I mean, that that should not have been too hard to bring about. And yet that snag certainly seems to have been the COVID-19 source, which caught VCU. So a lot of different things uh, were part of that whole series of events and VCU paid the price. It's really very unfortunate. And the interesting thing about the official situation and how they're sort of separately, their protocols are discreet from other protocols is we did have an example of this that should have been an instructive and object lesson with the PAC 12 this year when there were issues with officials and covert protocol tracings. That's a, that adds a whole entire ver, uh, uh, vector of transmission. And it's almost like they have their own separate, lane of transmission and protocols and then you're intersecting them with players that lesson should have been learned it apparently has not was not learned in time and vcu um god bless the vcu rams they paid the they paid the price for it absolutely and that that pac-12 officiating issue you're referring to that was ucla and oregon playing on uh, they were scheduled to play on december 23rd in Eugene, and the game got postponed because the officiating crew uh, had a COVID-19 issue. Not Neither the Bruins nor the Ducks had a COVID-19 problem. That game was strictly officiated. And I'm not sure how many other college basketball games over the course of the entire season were, were postponed solely because of the officials. But, but nevertheless, yes, that should have factored into – the protocols and procedures in Indianapolis and, you know, someone missed that really, really big detail and it's really unacceptable. Some breaking news over the past couple of days, the top or second ranked, I believe they're, they're either one or two, UCLA softball team in the ever powerful Pac-12 conference when it comes to softball, so many national championships, I can't even count them. They had to cancel their series this year this 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 weekend against the cal golden bears due to COVID issues it's pretty opaque now what's going on with the program there uh there was just a, a brief press release about the cancellation but when you look about the but, but the bigger issue is the larger backdrop of what's going on in la county and as we know when california which is the sixth largest economy in the world by itself catches a cold the rest of us catch a flu or in this case coronavirus so everybody pays attention to what's going on in California. And UCLA, like all the UC schools, is still doing remote learning through June. So the students aren't interacting as the general student body. I don't know what to, to what degree the, the athletes are left to their own devices. But what we're looking at right now in Los Angeles County is because of the housing situation and how closely people are juxtaposed, They've remained consistently in the purple tier, and you have a whole lot of pitch battles going on between the teachers and their own union, between the union and the superintendents and the L.A. County City Council about reopening schools. Uh, the teachers are saying, we're not going to go back until we get below the highest tier, which is the purple tier, uh, without vaccinations. And... You have a lot of other you have a, you, that's a separate and apart from the competing interest of the governor, Gavin Newsom, who's facing a recall effort and has moved up a lot of these timelines for uh, because he's got parents on one side, teachers on the other and caught in the middle are kids in that situation. And 
we have all these multiplier effects with all these events going on around the country uh, and people moving about uh, these reopenings in places like Texas and places like uh, in places like Florida. It uh, and now we have what is called the California or the L.A. variant. It really gives you a sense of foreboding as to what's going to happen in the near future in Los Angeles County and the country in general. Uh, it, it does. And, you know, I, I know that uh, uh, several weeks ago that California's legislature passed a bill that would give California residents uh, $600 relief checks. I have no idea what the progress has been in terms of the California government sending out those checks. Um, but it, it just it, it brings to mind just you know that this happens at such a late and advanced period in the pandemic, you know, relative to when it started, you know, it just, why, why weren't we doing all of these things at the very start? You know, it took, it took a full year really for, for a lot of policymakers and a lot of elected officials to realize, Hey, we need to be paying people to stay home. We need to pay people to shield them from at least to an extent from the economic uh, devastation that has unfolded, and it just you know we're, governments in California and elsewhere are scrambling. I mean, the governments did not get ahead of this, and you know we, we, this was a year of not only lost time but most importantly lost life. And you know we're seeing the uh, Amazon uh, union fight in Alabama. You know workers being subjected to very inhumane conditions and. Amazon, you know, these these Amazon tweets, you know, might be a punchline. You know, people are laughing at Amazon on Twitter, but, you know, no one's no one should be laughing at Amazon, given all the power Amazon has. And these 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 tweets from Amazon, while seeming amateurish, Ty, and, and one could even say they are amateurish, but they nevertheless, they reflect a mindset that, hey, we're untouchable. You know, we can tweet the most idiotic, sophomoric, juvenile, pathetic things. And yet. Is government going to rein us in? Is Congress going to regulate us? Amazon thinks it won't. And if you're in, why would anyone think that Congress is going to regulate Amazon based on everything we've seen, not just during the pandemic, but before it? So, you know, what you're what you're mentioning about Los Angeles and the L.A. variants and, and being behind the curve and, you know, nationally and regionally elected officials and governing bodies not being willing to fully crush the virus and really get on top of the pandemic the way, you know, Australia did, the way New Zealand did, the way lots of other uh, governments elsewhere in the world did. You know, it just shows how how scattered we are and how there there is just this desperation to to make money on the backs of Poor people on the backs of athletes such as UCLA softball, you know, we're, we just continue to refuse to see the ultimate truths that, you know, we need to preserve and protect our most vulnerable citizens. And we need to have strong, robust, widespread, universal policies that enshrine certain principles, certain goals, certain policy objectives you know, we either do some breadcrumbs here we, or we get around to this policy, you know, 12 months after the fact and that there's no sense of national unity in terms of schools reopening. I mean, you know, we need school to be open on a general level, Ty. Of course we do. And poor people, poor students are getting crushed by this because they don't have the technology 
you know, to learn from home, to get that hands-on instruction that they really desperately need. We know it's a problem. We know that they need to go to school, but we have the pandemic to, to, to deal with. Uh, sometimes I think, in my opinion, we we we, pres- we ascribe too much good faith as if this this were sort of a mistake. This is not a bu- this is not a bug. This is a feature of disaster capitalism. And the difference between, I mean, people were talking about, uh, and obviously we're we're digressing, but all these issues intertwine. People were talking about uh, giving uh, payments to folks uh, twelve months ago, uh, but the one thing that the state governments really can't do is they can't print money, and so. You have state governments like here in Washington trying to do the right thing and, and, and dance on the head of a pin. Uh, but when they don't get the money from the federal government, uh, that all trickles down. And then folks say, hey, we're not getting taken care of. So they have to balance certain certain competing interests, including their uh, including their electoral progress or their ele- their electoral future. And it's something like you said that we sh- these decisions we shouldn't be we, we shouldn't uh, uh, shouldn't be making. Uh, but at the end of the day, there were a lot of decisions that we made that were made, including us as a populace, sometimes making the wrong decisions. And we're seeing the sizzling, sizzling poop, pile, poop pile on the uh, on the back end. And what frightens me is like you like, like you were just speaking of is if you don't eat your vegetables at the beginning, you're going to get gout in the end. And we see Australia being able to have fans and have sporting events because they took they have a sense of national unity and they took the, and there was there was a symbiosis between the government, sporting events and the people. And uh, obviously, no, no place is completely conquered it, but they've come as close as possible. I mean, travel limitations between states. But now, as we you know, moving on to the ne- the next topic, we have the NFL draft to allow fans, uh, and the specifics are they are selected by. It's going to be in Ohio, Cleveland. They're selected by the teams. They're going to be brand ambassadors. They're going to be mandated vaccines. And but the question becomes, as we're seeing right now, there's a spike in the in the Great Northwest and the Great Lakes region. Uh, it's funny how our perspectives change because back in June, July, August, when we were only having about 10,000 cases per day, everybody had their hair on fire. Oh, my God, this is so horrible. Now we're saying we need to relax things in Texas and places like Florida uh, where there's but right now there's seven or eight times what it was in July. But because it's dropped from its peak in January, it has totally changed people's perspective, and there's a and there's a certain level of dissonance that's here, that 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 presents itself as if we have this thing conquered. And with the vaccines getting getting more and more rolled out, there just seems to be a general lack of patience. And so we see with the Miami Open happening right now, uh, and players in sort of a bubble. But that comes on the heels of what was a, a state of emergency declared in Miami. During spring break. Now, spring break, how does that bear on sports? Well, a lot of these people are college students, but they're part of the general population as well. But Florida is not a destination location for people who are young. It's only for people who are older, who are rich. For everybody else, it's an, it's an event place. People go there to attend events and to do things like Daytona Bike Week and like spring break. And when they are done with those events, they come back uh, to their home states, they come back to Ohio, they come back to Indiana, and they come back with more than just a tan in the in, in this pandemic uh, landscape we have here. So 
The interesting thing I'm, wor- I'm interested in your take on, Matt, is what's going to happen over the next few weeks um, uh, in terms of do you think the NFL is things start if, if things start to spike with the variance and we start to see the same trajectory going up, will the M- NFL change its position? Uh, you know, knowing the NFL as I do, it would seem to be that you know something really severe would have to happen to to budge the NFL off its current position. You know, one thing, and I mean, you know, we're we're talking about things beyond sports. I mean, including sports, but also transcending sports, Ty. And one of the things that keeps coming back to to hit us and harm us in American life and American discourse and how we think about policy, there is this cult of complexity that, oh, the world is complicated. And And okay, of course the world is complicated. Of course life is complicated. No one argues that. But the idea that policies have to be complicated, uh, that becomes a, a shield for, uh, you know, really corrupt policy, atrocious policy. It becomes an excuse for inaction in very easy ways. I mean, look at like relief checks. You know, the idea that it's a budgetary nightmare, we can't afford it, so on and so forth. These things really need to be complicated. You know, that's the mindset that gives us means testing, and, you know, means testing is precisely the kind of thing which slows down the administration of relief checks or any other kind of major assistance to the population in a time of need. Remember, it's only means testing for it's only means testing for the poor and the working class. Well, it's not means testing true. for anybody else. The, the bigger point is this cult of complexity is an excuse. It's a very disingenuous excuse to not do anything or to not be, you know, fully robust or expansive in terms of outreach, in terms of uh, giving resources to populations. And so, you know, th- th- with the NFL draft, then I use the I tie this into the NFL draft because why are you having fans a- a- attend a draft? This is unnecessary complexity. The, the virtual draft the NFL had a year ago worked great. People even liked it. Like, wow, you can just do this draft efficiently, remotely, without having, you know, this huge logistical setup involved. Now, look, when the pandemic lifts and it's fully safe to be out and about in a mass gathering, you know, have your big draft crowd, have your big public gathering. But to kind of have a a, a gathering with some fans as though that is important right now and to have to go through all the complicated logistical hoops to make that happen. That's the cult of complexity. Do just do another remote draft. No one it's, it's fully safe. You know, it ensures safety. It's the simplest thing. You don't need to get wrapped up in the cult of complexity. We're in this situation in America, not just relative to the NFL draft, but you know, we, we want to have these events feel normal again. We want to have these things in our lives again. And, you know, we are, we are having the NCAA tournament. It's not the way it always was. It's not the way we want it to be. But let's just be grateful that we're having it. Let's let's settle for that simplicity. Let's not try to have this in-between reality where we want to have these events be normal. You know what? In 2021, these events are not going to be normal. We need to accept that. It also applies to schools. You know, we're, like the idea that you go through six months of a school year or a school cycle, but then, oh, we got to squeeze in some in-classroom time. Why wasn't it always the, the focus to crush the pandemic in this school year and then have everything ready to open up in August? 
That always should have been the focus, that this school year was going to be an absolute mess for everybody, and people should have just been able to accept that. But instead, we're trying to thread this needle of, of having reopenings late in the school year, March, April. You know, it just doesn't make any sense. It's It has to be draining for the teachers and students, you know, to be caught in this in-between world. Are we going to a school today? Are we staying at home? How do we do this? It, we, it always should have been just the one mindset of let's let's just ride out this one year. Let's be ready to fully open every school in the country in August. But no, the cult of complexity, insisting that things need to be harder uh, than they actually are, you know, that it just, I see it pervasively, NFL draft, school reopenings, everywhere you look on the American landscape. This is for either one of you, Gina Marie or Lynette, either one, Uh, you know, as an organization, when you, you, you start up and, and you're looking for, I mean, you obviously want to have as many success stories as possible, but it's obviously good to have kind of a representative success story that you can share to spread the word about how Nobby works, how it succeeds, how it transforms people's lives. So do you have a favorite representative story that you use when you try to spread the gospel of Nobby, so to speak? And maybe, uh, you know, as your alumni base has grown over time, you know, how how has the story of how you share your organization's work? How has that grown? What What's the kind of message you're seeing in terms of the success stories you create and how those alumni s- share their stories with the newer generations to continue to build and increase your, your networks. Well, um, this is Gina Marie and I'm going to start and I'll have Lynette finish with her perspective, but you know, when me and Mark West, um, you know, really started building Nobby, um, uh, we lost Scott Podleski in 2010. Um, so when me and him really, our goal was to make the kids come here and feel special. You know, I was an inner city kid and um, nonprofits literally saved my life. You know, I I am a product. I am evidence that they work. And um, so we both and, and, you know, Mark comes from Virginia and blue collar worker family. And we both knew um, how important these programs were. And the, the key was to make them feel special. And I know that sounds simple, but it was really that simple, like make them feel special. So that's why we do everything and all the elements and roll out the red carpet and, you know, spare no expense. And it has come and it's come into fruition because when we talk to our alumni, we have Dominic Clichy, who came to Nobby 2004, second year, um, Navajo Nation, came down to Nobby, didn't know what he was going to do with his life, you know, like a lot of kids that, you know, in high school or out of high school. And he said Nobby changed his, his life. And when I got, I said, Dom, you know, he's an epidemiologist now working in Navajo Nation during, with the pandemic. To, it's just how that came full circle. Um, but when I asked him, he said it. He goes, he goes, I felt special. 
he goes, you know, you got to understand sometimes when we come off the res and we, we go places where we don't feel special and, you know, um, and, and we got that, we got that. And, and it moves on to, you know, we have Macy Gillies who came years ago, um, from North Dakota, MHA nation and never been out of North Dakota. And she comes to Nobby. She actually did Nobby four years and she loved it. She loved Phoenix. She loved the mercury. She fell in love with, um, Phoenix and, now she's working for the Mercury. She went on to college and now she's working for the Mercury. And so that came full circle. Angel Goodrich, um, WNBA, um, I believe she played three years. And um, she was already being scouted because she was really an amazing ball player when she was playing in Nobby. So she got picked up by Kansas um, and then went on to the WNBA. But she even said that Nobby was an incredible experience for her. And she was glad that her little sister, Nikki, um, was able to, you know, play in Nobby. Um, so they're, they're a family of ballers, their mom coaching, unbelievable family of basketball players. And now up to Brad Green, who is currently at um, UC Irvine. And one of the things that Brad wasn't raised on the reservation um, and he loved Nobby because it helped him connect. You know, here's a Native American player um, and coming to play at Nobby, he now has served as a guest speaker, um, one of our junior Nobby clinic coaches that we put on during Nobby week for our younger kids. And he, it allowed him to connect um, and be around other Native Americans. And, and he just, it really helped him come full circle, not only as a D1 basketball player, but as a D1 Native American basketball player. He, he gets the importance of, you know, creating these platforms for our youth to be um, highlighted and increasing the number of Native Americans in our, you know, D1, D2 sports and so on. So we've had um, a bunch of success stories and it all comes down to what we set out um, for Nobby to do. Our mission was to make the kids feel special where they believe in themselves and they leave, you know, with some type of idea, some type of plan. And, you know, the least, you know, me and Mark always said, you know, going into the WNBA is great. Uh, playing Division One, you know, two is wonderful too. But walking out the door of a college with a degree and an education is something nobody can ever take from you. So it, it's, it's really been um, an experience, a journey that we're seeing every year you know, just new, new things, new, you know, some stuff we don't even plan for and things happen. And, you know, it's just all those tentacles that Nobby is reaching and um, it makes us really feel good. You know, it, uh, I always, I was worried about Nobby when we had to cancel. Um, There was a lot of tears. I'm not going to deny that. Lynette can, you know, be my witness. Like, you know, we had to look out for the safety of the kids, our communities and, um, but, you know, I was worried that we weren't going to, this was going to be it for Nobby. And, um, but I know in my heart of hearts, if it was, we did amazing things. Um, me and Mark West, my other co-founder, had that conversation. If it is truly the end of Nobby, we know for the last 18 years, we, we made a difference. Gina Marie, you spoke to something that is sort of universal. Um, uh, I, you know, I tell people sometimes, I grew up in South Central Los Angeles uh, about 25 miles from the beat from the Pacific Ocean. And people marvel when I say that there are kids in my, in my, in my neighborhood who've never been to the beach, 
right? So something that's universal amongst underserved communities is an outlet to expand your horizons. Um, so, so that's a, that's very very universal um, um, uh, theme here. I want to ask uh, both you and Lynette, uh, speaking to that with what what happened with the cancellation last year. Uh, well, not last year, but just now we just have the cancellation of spring and winter sports. I know on the uh, the Hopi and and, Diné, and Navajo reservations. Um, I know there's a mismatch of that stuff going all around the country. You know, different or different sports leagues, different um, uh, jurisdictions in different states are doing different things. Has Nobby's importance been magnified this year in terms of have you seen uh, the request to be part of the tournament fill up a lot more quickly than after you've announced that there's going to be one this year? I, you know, when Lynette has, first of all, I want to say thank you to Lynette. She's been with us for 10 years. And I always say she's, she was the other half of my brain, but she's becoming my full brain now, you know, doing this for so long, I needed that person. And she's amazing. Um, when we put together the announcement of Navi, you know, we had some teams roll over when we canceled, we did a full refund, and, but some teams were like, please just keep it. I want to be in for 2021 automatic entry. And we're like, okay, cause it's still an invitational, you know, the teams apply depending on how many teams we get, we have to invite. So we gave them an automatic entry, but even with that, within 24 hours of us announcing registration is open, we were, we were past halfway wow. full and they're still coming in. So that really, and halfway full to our goal of 128, um, I really believe in my heart of hearts, we're going to surpass that. Um, our, our coaches, our teams, even some of our communities are seeing the importance of Navi and um, they're going to come back. Uh, I owe, Every year I worry, I'll be honest with you guys, is it successful as Navi <laughs> is, we don't have to advertise to get teams. I mean, it's, it is what it is. Every year I still worry, you know, like, are we going to make our teams or we're going to make our teams and my staff laugh at me every year. Um, because that last two weeks they come flying in and then we're going over. Then I start worrying about, <laughs> Oh my God, who do we have to refuse? Because now there's too many. Um, so I am like, I am a victim of my own brain is what I call it. And Lynette's probably laughing because she knows this is all true, but, um, you know, the thing about it is that's why moving back to Phoenix, um, we'll have the capacity to grow and not turn down teams. So we're really happy that we're back in Phoenix after four years. And this year has proven with the amount of interest in the, how fast teams are signing up and not wait until last minute, how important Navi is to, to the communities. And um, like Lynette said, there were many articles, both in Navajo Times and nationally, um, the devastation of the cancellation of Navi and what it did to communities. And how, I mean, communities come too. It's just not the teams. You know, they all come down for Navi too. And we have um, council members and chairmen coaching some of the teams. It's really an experience. And I just really believe that um, COVID, um, as bad as it is still, um, I think once, you know, we're, we're in July with, where Navi is going to take place. And right now, everything. I'm really lucky to have the relationship I have with the Phoenix Suns because they kind of keep me abreast of what's going on with the city, the county, the state when it comes to sports. And um, so right now we're still planning for July. Everything's still looking good. We know in our heart of hearts there's going to be some safety precautions that we're going to have to take, mandatory masks, 
you know, and I, hand sanitizing stations are going to be mandatory, um, you know, but it's fluid. Like two weeks from now, if we do this interview, stuff has changed. So, but we really believe that Nobby, if, if the least we do is the tournament with a couple of motivational speakers, um, I think our communities would be happy. Um, and then we will go full full-blown knobby going back into 2022 with all the elements, bells and whistles. Okay, so Gina Marie, uh, you, you know, the, the event's going to be in July. Uh, you know, there's, there's a sense, I mean, this is not nailed down or final by any means. It's a very fluid situation, but there's a sense that a lot of vaccinations are going to be done by June. So what, so a, a couple things here, one was the July uh, date, created with a presumption that, you know, th- there will be a significant threshold of vaccinations reached by June. And the other question is, you know, will this event be used not only, uh, you know, having some health policies in place, of course, but also perhaps as a as a chance to vaccinate members of tribal communities and therefore providing them a, a service, a, a public health service? What what are the possibilities being explored and what, what how much did the July date flow into other COVID-19 vaccination and other information you've been getting from the Suns, from various le- levels of Arizona government, et cetera? Well, you know, I don't really see us becoming a vaccination station. That would be a um, a project in itself. And us being a nonprofit, we are limited with staffing. So, I mean, unless we get approached by one of our big, you know, medical entities out here that are organizing them, like, um, and say, hey, can we? Um, you know, that that's something that we can discuss later down the road. But as far as like vaccinations are concerned, um, right now, actually, it's funny you caught me on this day. I just had my second dose this morning and I was out at the Cardinal Stadium and they had the big signage where a million um, people in Arizona have already been vaccinated. They have this big board with all the numbers on it. And um, they're really predicting by June um, a majority of people who want the vaccination in Arizona will have it. They're going to be opening up um, the 55 plus and over here soon in our state. So, and you know, the good thing about um, the tribes and the vaccinations because of um, COVID and the pandemic uh, really devastating tribal nations, they got vaccines and they were allowed to not only do the elderly and 75 plus or 65 plus, a lot of our tribal communities opened it up to all their members. I mean, I'm seeing posts every day, even here in Arizona with some of our local tribes. You know, if you're a member, make sure you come out and get your vaccination. So I'm very proud of um, some of our tribes that uh, what they're doing with this initiative and really promoting the vaccination. And, you know, people ask me, like, you got it? Like, why wouldn't you want to wait and see what happens? And I'm like, well, of course I want to wait. But, you know, I believe in my heart of hearts. We're running a, an organization that's going to put on one of the largest basketball um, tournaments and educational summits in really North America for our Native youth. I want to be safe. So um, I want to make sure I'm safe, you know, when I'm working with the kids, when I'm working with the communities. And, you know, if we, I, I, what I would like to do is work with an organization that promotes the safety of the vaccine to help with some of the anxiety that people are feeling from it. 
you know, because um, there's all these stories out there. And, and you know, like I said, I, I'm, I'm on my second dose. Um, <laughs> I feel fine. I didn't grow a third head. Um, oh, you know, <laughs> or even a second head, you know. Um, so I just really believe in my heart of hearts that we would work with our health agencies if they approach us and ask us because we have such a um, large demographics that comes to Navi, our Native American people. I will work with a local tribe if they want to do a health, you know, um, initiative or program at Navi. But becoming a vaccination station, I would not want to take on that after being at the Cardinal Stadium. Right, logistically speaking, that's obviously it's, it's a, a very daunting undertaking. However, you just touched on something, Gina Marie, that. Uh, you can use your platform to spread awareness, and that's very important for uh, communities of color. I know being being African-American, we have a history with things like the Tuskegee experiment and sterilization of African-American uh, female prisoners back in as recently as the 90s. And I know certain Native communities have had that history as well, uh, going back to the colonial settlement days, uh, you know, with smallpox and everything else. So there's there's a there's there's a there's a, there's a cultural memory that can sometimes breed distrust from these type of large scale uh, efforts from outsiders to bring something in that's chemically based, right? Um, and uh, to to use yourself as an example right. to say. Um, in addition to this, a this is sort of a way we can use we can use this also as a data point or an entry point to get some educational initiatives and use this as a platform as well to tell people, hey, we'd love to have you out here, but we'd also want you to get vaccinated. And have you seen with the communities, um, both you um, and also Lynette with uh, the Navajo communities as well, um, they sometimes tend to get left behind with these some of these efforts. Um, have you been seeing that um, there's been a concerted effort to really try to get these communities uh, taken care of and get them get, get them made whole and safe with it, with, with this effort? I know for the Navajo Nation, actually, I've seen like an article saying that the Navajo Nation is actually very successful in providing vaccinations to the community. So I think they kind of like superseded, you know, and. Um, definitely they are getting everyone, whoever they can vaccinated. I know it's pretty much open now. You know, you can easily make an appointment, go in and get a vaccination. I'm actually considering going back up north just to get my vaccination, whenever that is. <laughs> but, um, yeah, um, I definitely, like Marie said, you know, I have also seen a lot of other tribal communities who have, um, kind of given like they have the, the vaccinations and they are giving out these vaccinations it did start off you know as those you know um, essential workers 65 and over and now they're going to younger ages so i i feel really confident that by the time july is here that you know a good um majority of these tribal communities will have the vaccination already uh lynette um one question I have is, you know, how can just citizens help with Nobby's project? How can people who, you know, are listening to this podcast and seeing all the good work that you're doing, um, you know, is there a way for the, the citizenry to just make uh, specific kinds of contributions or maybe do certain forms of advocacy or maybe there are volunteer opportunities connected to what Nobby is doing? Give us a a sense of what people can do to contribute to to what you're doing. Well, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna 
answer that. And Lynette can get into the volunteers and the wonderful program that she does with them. Um, you know, the thing with Nobby is what people don't realize is that we are a 501c3 charity. And um, it's hard to raise funding. It really, truly, truly is. And not just because of COVID. Um, Nobby, you know, Mark West and I made a, um, a promise to Indian country when we started Nobby that it would be for the sole purpose of serving Native American youth. And we get asked a lot to opening it up to non-natives, our programs, because they are exceptional. Our tournament's exceptional. And we won't, we won't do it. So there are so many, there's a lot of funding out there, um, but because we're considered discriminatory, because we only serve Native American youth, we, we, we get passed by for funding. Um, and then you add the basketball element to it, and they look at us as a basketball tournament. They don't look at the educational component. They're not understanding that we just use basketball as the hook. Um, they look at us just as an event. So more funding passes us. And so it just, it just, it's a continuous um, fight to for funding. And if anybody would love to be part of our program, help both financially, donations, um, even volunteering, what Lynette can talk about some of those opportunities, our internship that's coming up. Um, but funding is needed. Uh, we do specifically serve only Native American, our Native American youth. And that's some, a promise we made, and it's going to be a promise we keep. Um, but again, because we're, we're, we've made that promise, it does hinder some of the funding aspect. We're very proud about our, um, our foundation, the percentage. Um, at any given year, it's over 80%. So that's 80 cents on a dollar goes to our programming. People can look at our 990s and see how what good stewards we are of our funding. Um, so, you know, it, it would just be, you know, I, I don't want to say help, but we need help. Um, if Nobby's going to continue to grow and continue to be a positive program and positively impact our Native American youth, we need help both tribally, um, non-tribal corporations, individuals who want to give. Um, you know, my thing is trying to get Nobby on the map when it comes to funding and giving. Yeah, and so um, in regards to volunteers, we are a nonprofit, so we rely heavily on volunteers all the time, and especially during our our week of Nobby. Um, there's only two of us as far as staff is as far as staff goes, <laughs> so you know we can't run this whole tournament by ourselves. <laughs> so definitely need volunteers during the week of Nobby. Um, also, we do have our golf fundraiser that we also um, have volunteers help us at. And you know, there's so much during the week of Nobby. I like to provide um, an application and of all the different opportunities throughout the week and. Um, I've noticed over the years that our volunteers have actually increased. So I, I feel like they really love the, the jobs that we are giving them as volunteers. You know, they have their own set of skills and, you know, I'm sure some, anyone out there has their own set of skills. And we're always looking for people who know how to do like, you know, graphics or, you know, um, so that kind of like we value that as an organization. And then we also have our internship. So that's, that's just something we just recently put out there. So, you know, we are looking for um, anyone who's currently in college who did one year of college already. Um, you know, we do have that Native American preference. And then if there is Nobby alumni, you know, it's it's preferred but not required. 
But those are kind of like our guidelines as far as the internship goes. And for the two of you, um, and sort of as we sort of wrap up, um, it's, it's said that, you know, for, uh, you know, we all know that uh, fire creates new growth and we have silver lining. So I want to ask each of you, and we'll go, I'll go ahead and start with Lynette. Um, talk to me about an inspirational story. It could be an athlete. It could be someone in the community, someone who's really stepped up in the community. Um, or maybe it could have been like Gen- Gina Marie was talking about players that uh, thought they were, that their ch- opportunity was lost, but found an opportunity through, uh, through some additional efforts, even though the tournament was canceled. Um, I'll start with Lynette, but give us uh, both of you uh, some inspirational stories specifically that you're uh, at liberty to, to discuss uh, over this period uh, that, uh, that has, 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 that has made you proud and edified you and, and uh, something that uh, would really lift the spirits of people as they hear it. I think definitely it's those that um, have gone on from Nobby and, you know, all the individuals that Gina Marie mentioned earlier, you know, just seeing them grow as an individual. And I think it's important that they definitely give back. They come back to our organization and they, you know, become speakers. I feel like, they are role models for the next generation. Those kids who are currently going through the, through our Navi program, you know, uh, I feel like role models, mentorship is definitely important, especially for our native youth, because, you know, unfortunately not a lot of them are having that um, experience. You know, they don't have mentors, they don't have role models. And I think those who go through our program and succeed, um, I think it's important that they contribute back and they show our you, you know, you can do it too. If I can do it, you can do it too. So I think those are the the main ones that I feel that are have been inspirational, and it's just it's just great to see. Um, I personally have a story that I I like to share, and it was more a um, it was a quest. <laughs> I like to say fight, but I'm not going to use the word fight. I'm going to say quest. You know, when we started Navi in 2003, one of our goals was to become an NCAA certified tournament. And um, I remember filling out that application the first year to become, you know, sanctioned as a summer tournament where D1 and two scouts can come out because we knew we had talent. And not to say that every single team has that D1 talent, but we knew we had some diamonds in the rough. Um, And so we applied and there was this one box that said that, um, you know, we had to abide by the same state rule. And the same state rule was where the teams were comprised of players from the same state. I think they had one rule where um, one or two players can come from adjoining states. And of course, I was like, well, that doesn't apply to us, you know, uh, reservation, tribal demographics, you know, sovereignty just doesn't apply. So I didn't check that box. Um, And then I got a letter saying, sorry, we cannot sanction you because I didn't check that box. (laughs) So to me, the simplicity of but it doesn't apply to us, wasn't enough. So I contacted the NCAA. They wouldn't budge. Um, I met with some NCAA specialist who told me, don't even try. They don't budge. Um, they'll never change it. And that sent me on a quest for almost, oh, my God, four or five years um, to change it. Um, and we did, we did with the help of uh, people who got involved, who believed in our plight and our fight 
and um, we had it changed. And what if you go into the NCAA governance site and you'll see the rules now, the exception is tribal tournaments. And even though we were an NCAA tournament in 2007 and we remained one for a couple of years, um, it actually hindered us. We, we, a lot of teams didn't come because of the, the amount of paperwork and all the stuff that had to take place with an NCAA tournament. Um, and we weren't there yet as far as skills-wise with our kids. We didn't have that basket or plethora of, of athletes that were going to be D1 players. And so we ended up dropping NCAA um, sanctioning, but I'm happy we did it. Um, because what that sanctioning does for all tribal tournaments now can become sanctioned tournaments without abiding by the same state rule. So I fought for sovereignty. And when it's all said and done and I pass the torch, that makes me feel good because anybody anybody can now in Indian country can have a tournament and it can become NCAA sanctioned and based on tribal sovereignty. And, um, and we're encouraging that. We just started a Facebook group that promotes other tribal tournaments because NABI is what it is. Um, we don't have to promote. We get the teams. So now we want to help because um, there is a need. There's need for more. If we're turning teams down um, and we can't meet the demand, there's room for more tournaments. There's room for more programs like this. So with our Facebook group, um, it's called uh, Res Ball Nation you can actually go on and promote your tournament. And we're using our resources to help them do that. So it's about, um, not just about Navi, we're a community, Res Ball's a community, um, our native youth are one big community, and we wanna see more programs like this. And we wanna see more programs supported. You know, the same plight we're having with fundraising, a lot of these programs have too. So um, we're all in it. Um, we're one big community, it's Res Ball. That does it for this episode of Upon Further Review. And until next time, learn more, share more, think more, care more. Mm-hmm.